I invite you to turn to the 14th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And I want to begin reading at verse 25, reading through verse 33. The 25th verse of Luke 14 begins, Now great multitudes were going along with him, and he turned to them and said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yea, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and take counsel whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks terms of peace. So therefore, no one of you can be my disciple. Would you listen to that again? So therefore, none, no one of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. In the Today section of the Dallas Morning News, Tuesday, March the 28th, there was this story about the number one army recruiter in the state of Texas. He lives in San Antonio, and every morning at 7 o'clock he leaves his house to go out to these little towns around San Antonio and recruit people to join the army. He, uh, he's finding, he said, increasingly more difficult to get people to join. He has a goal of having, getting four people a month to sign up for the army. And on this one particular day, he, he stopped in this little town, little village out near San Antonio to get a cold drink. And he went in this convenience store and he'd gotten his cold drink and he was kind of standing over by the delicatessen, you know, where they cook the fried chicken, you know, and stuff. And, and there was this young man uh, working in there. So he, he asked him, he said, have you ever, you ever been, have, have you ever been a part of the service? Have you ever been in the service? And the guy said, nah, he said, I don't like to be told what to do. And the guy said, well, he said, that's okay. But he said, when, when the boss tells you to fry the chicken, you fry the chicken, don't you? There are some commands that are just not negotiable. The command to follow Christ is one of them. As a matter of fact, the scripture portrays the call of allegiance to Jesus Christ in rather blunt terms and simply stated is this, that no one can be a disciple of Jesus Christ who who is not willing to give up everything that he has. Now every good commander tells up front what are the terms of, 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 of discipleship? And so that's what Jesus is doing. He's establishing the non-negotiable terms of following Him. 
Now some young boy bleeding to death on a battlefield someday had no idea that when as a little boy he pledged allegiance to the flag that it would ever come to this. And so Jesus wants us to know up front what a pledge of allegiance means to him. And simply stated is this, unless you're willing to give up your life, you cannot follow him. And then he takes that command. He doesn't say, by the way, he doesn't say, I hope you're able to do it. And, and he doesn't ever say, please. He just takes that command and he applies it to certain areas of our life to show us what it involves. It involves, first of all, lordship over family. Now these are harsh and stark, cold words, it seems, that Jesus uses when he says that unless a person hates his father and mother and brother and sister and his own children, those are cold words, it appears. And you need to understand what, what, what's happening here. You see, um, is, it, is it that, is this Jesus who has commanded us to love our enemies, telling us to hate our own family? And, 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 and would Jesus suggest, on the one hand, that, that we are to hate our own children when he welcomed children to himself? What's going on here? Well, to understand what Jesus is saying, we, we need to understand that in, in Hebrew thought, they made much use of extremes so that when a person was going to say, I like this better than I like that, he would often say, I love this and I hate that. And he would use those extremes and Jesus knew they were accustomed to that and so he picks up on it and he wants us to see that even in family relationships there is a, there is a demand laid upon us to follow him. He's saying that, that lordship must come before family. He's saying that one's allegiance to Jesus Christ must take priority over one's allegiance to his family. He's saying that the will of God takes priority over the will of family. He's saying that he must come first before any other relationship. And what appears on the surface to be directed against the family is really the only way that a family can be blessed. For example, when a person loves his family or he loves someone in a relationship that puts them first, he ends up worshiping them. And they end up becoming all that he has, and he ends up becoming all that they have. And what was meant to be a wonderful and beautiful thing becomes a very destructive thing. He's all they have, and they're all he has. And at the end of a brief life, then all that one has is death and despair. But on the other hand, if a person loves in such a way that Christ is always first, he can love another in a way that points them to him. That is, his love for them points them to Christ and, and, to, his, and to his will, and that's a very healthy thing. It's a very frightening thing to, to realize that you can love someone in such a way that you actually separate them from God and and that love actually separates you from God. But when your love for your family is nothing more than family doting, 
And when you love your children, your love for your children is really just a pursuit in a direction that does not lead them to the Lord. That love is a destructive thing. And so a suicide note left by a young boy just before he took his life refers to his family and said, they'll be thunderstruck for all their care for me. They didn't know me. They fed me, but I'm hungry. And they gave me a house, but I'm cold and homeless. I tell you, I shudder every time I hear parents say, we can't come to church. It's the only time when we can be together as a family. Listen, if you give priority to family so that you can't be together in God's house on God's day, you're walking on thin ice. And I shudder when I see parents encouraging their children to be successful in school and athletics, couldn't care less if they grow as a Christian. And it's a terrifying thing. I shudder when I see parents make available to their children unlimited resources to drive nice cars and to wear designer clothes. But if you have something at the church, well, we just can't afford it. And I shudder when I see parents who insist that their kids go to school, but they leave the decision of going to church up to the kids. It's, it's, a disaster, it's a destructive kind of love. And so what Jesus is saying is this, if you're going to follow me, it means that I must come first in every relationship, even in the family. And then he says that to follow me means absolute, absolute self-denial. As a matter of fact, he is, he's saying that there is such a tremendous cost here, it's going to cost you your life. And he warns that, that you know, before you follow me, says, be sure that you understand the price, the price. For there is a tremendous price tag to, is placed on faith. Are you able to pay that price? Don't follow me, he says, unless you're sure you can meet those demands. C.S. Lewis said, if you're looking for a religion that'll make you feel real comfortable, then I don't recommend the Christian religion. In order for us to understand what it means to follow him and the cost that's involved, he gives us two parables. One is the parable of the unfinished towers. and It was, it was uh, prevalent in Jesus' day for farmers to build these stone towers out in the middle of their fields so that their laborers could could have protection against these marauders that would come in, these bandits in the daytime. And they'd build these stone towers and the owners of the harvest would get in them at harvest time and would stay out there during the night to protect the harvest. And Jesus, growing up in a carpenter shop and stone masonry was a part of that vocation, had seen oftentimes people start to build these towers and, and, and they'd be unfinished. And he knew the cost that was involved in that. He, he knew that that was no small task. It demanded a tremendous price. And he said, be careful that you know the cost because if you start out to build that, to so start out that project and you're not able to finish it, you become a source of ridicule. As a matter of fact, the action, the, the, the procedure itself becomes a source of ridicule. Now I'm talking about this morning about the spiritual horizon that is literally littered by unfinished towers. I'm talking about people who have made commitments to God in this very church 
in these very aisles that have not followed through. I'm talking about young people who have made commitments at Falls Creek and Disciple Now weekends for years that have never really followed through after the initial blush of that experience. I'm talking about this horizon, this spiritual horizon that is littered with unfinished towers with promises that are unkempt. What Jesus is saying is this, be sure that you understand the price before you make a commitment to it or you become a source of ridicule. And then he gives us the parable of the kings declaring war on his neighbor, neighboring king. He's going to take some land away from him. And the, and the normal procedure is that, that that king sits down and calculates to see if he's going to be able to, to win this battle. And he, he implies the absurdity, the foolishness of declaring war and then deciding you're not going to be able to win. And so while your troops are marching off to battle, you send an emissary and plead for peace, ask for a peace treaty while you're on the way to war. He said, yeah, you're going to get a peace treaty all right, but the terms are going to be dictated by the enemy. And the peace that you secure at that time will be the dishonoring peace of a coward's compromise. Now what Jesus is saying is this. You better be sure that you're going to have enough courage to endure the warfare before you make a commitment to follow me because it indeed involves a warfare. Now be sure and understand that Jesus is not talking about people who have already come to him in faith. He's talking, he's talking about people who are considering it. Now we have an advantage in our day of, uh, of having all these computers, you know, and we take all this information about a certain project and we feed that information into a computer we call it a feasibility study and the purpose of that feasibility study is to see if the bottom line is cost productive if indeed I'm able to pay you know I'm able to make some money on this project I'm always amazed at people who have these computer minds who can just take figures and put them in their minds or put them in computers and come out with a prediction of what it's going to cost and see if they're able to you know, to do it. This feasibility study is not possible in the Christian life. For whenever you plug in all the factors that you know about following Jesus and all that you have heard from preachers and teachers, Sunday school teachers, etc., when you feed that into this text, it always comes out the same. What does it cost to follow Christ? It costs you your life. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, now that, now really, that sounds pretty fanatical. I mean, we've got a church house full of people who've never done that. What does that mean? It means that if I'm going to follow Christ, I must be willing to place at His disposal everything that I have and everything I am. My possessions are at His disposal. My gifts and talents, my spiritual gift, my, my abilities, my time, my life I place at His disposal. Now, are you willing to pay that price, young people? It's the price of absolute self-denial. It means that I make a pledge of allegiance beforehand, understanding that that pledge may be like the young boy dying on a field of battle. It may cost me my life, literally. Am I able to pay that price? 
You ever gone into a department store where as soon as you got there, you knew you couldn't afford what was on the counter, on the, on the, on the rack? I, I went into a, a store in Dallas one time looking for a suit. I, it didn't take, I walked in there, and I'd seen this advertisement, and it, as soon as I walked in, I knew I couldn't afford anything on, that, on the rack, but I wasn't about to, you know, admit that. I was going to fake it at least. And, and there was this guy in there, he was obviously very wealthy, and he was just taking suits off the rack, you know, and he was coming out of the dressing room, you know, I like this. And, and, and he didn't even know, the, he didn't even know what it cost. He didn't care. He pulled out his gold Visa card. And he, he went to pay for it, and, he's, and, and, and for the first time, that guy told him the price. didn't matter to him, he had the money. And here I am over here, you know, and I'm, I'm kind of embarrassed to, you know, look at the price tag. They, they didn't, that guy, you know, he didn't even look. And then, have you ever noticed that a salesman won't even hardly come over to you if he sees you looking at the price tag in a store like that, you know? And, and I'm just kind of over there going, you know, just kind of, just kind of trying to, kind of trying to see, you know, kind of inconspicuous. I, 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 took a, I took two sport coats up to the counter, and I thought it said $75 on it. Man, I thought, man, this is a bargain. When I got up, it was $175 a piece. Well, I hate to say, you know, I can't afford that. And I'm expecting some guy to come up behind me and say, if you have to look at the price tag, you can't afford it. We know so little about self-denial. Um, we, we, we feel like we have a right to so many things. I have a right to be comfortable. I have a right to warmth. I have a right to be loved. I have a right to be always understood. I have a right to express myself. And so self-denial is a harsh and ugly and loathsome word. We like self-fulfillment and self-gratification and self-identity. Someone said we're so self-absorbed that our idea of roughing it is having to cut a filet mignon with a dull knife. And so McDonald's says, you deserve a break today. And Burger King says, have it your way. And that's the way we want it. But Jesus said, it'll be my way. Or don't follow me. And Sam Shoemaker said, every Christian must make a choice sometime in his life between two pains, the pain of a divided mind or the pain of a crucified self. I ask you this morning, are you willing to suffer the pain of a crucified self? You remember that story Calvin Miller told? Well, he didn't tell it, but I told it and he told it. About going across the country, going across Nebraska in the car and he had his kids with him. And, and they, they'd always, his boy was learning phonics and so they, they told him, said, every sign you see, every word you see, say the word and spell it, trying to learn phonics. And he said, we got behind this old cattle truck. He said, anywhere you go in Nebraska, you're behind the cattle truck. And he said, I looked up there, and I was driving along, I looked up there, and I saw that somebody had scratched in the mud and the crud on the back of that cattle truck a four-letter word. Now, you can use your imagination what that was, but I, I'm not at liberty to say the word. And he said, I was saying to myself, oh, God, Please don't let him say that word. But he said, all of a sudden, from the back seat, he tried to say the word. And he said, he started spelling it. Slowly. 
he spelled agonizingly, he spelled every letter of the word. He said, when he got to the end of the word, my puritanical aunt had a stroke and died. And he said, my wife grabbed her King James Bible and held it up like an exorcist. And he said, I was trying, you know, to quieten him down. He was trying to say the word, trying to spell the word. And then he said something very poignantly. He said, you know, Dad, he said, you know, the hardest words to spell are those little short words. You know, the hardest words I have ever learned to say are the words, Lord, obey and deny. Those are the hardest. I've lived 40 years trying to live out those words. And there's a little story of, from, from the life of Queen Elizabeth when she was a little girl. In her temper tantrum, she said, I'm a princess. I can do anything I want to. And her grandfather, King George V, said, Yes, darling, you are a princess. And because you are a princess, that means all your life you cannot do what you want to do. Absolute self-denial means that I turn my life over to the control of someone else and I place at his disposal, at his disposal, my life. One last thought, please. Lordship over family in every relationship. Absolute self-denial. Explicit, explicit obedience. Explicit obedience. Now he gets at that when he talks about taking up your own cross. Your own cross. You know what a cross, you know what the cross is, as Jesus used that term often in calling people to follow him. It is that place where a person offers up his life for a lifetime. It's the place where he spends his life. It's actually the offering up of one's life to live for God in obedience. Because as Paul talks about that he became obedient even unto death, the death of the cross, what he means is that he, he offers up his life for a lifetime of service. And that cross is the, is the picture of it, the symbol of it. It's where you spend your life. Now listen carefully. I don't want you turning me off because you think I'm talking to young people. I'm really not. I want you to listen carefully. You can't just have a little bit of God. Now, I think that sometimes we, we think, well, I'll just have a little pinch of God. You know, I'm just like a, just a dash of God, and I'll, I'll put a little pinch of, just a little dash of God in the ingredients, and I'll stir him in there with all the rest of the stuff in life. Can't do that. He won't, he won't buy that. I'm going to get out of school and I'm going to go to college and I'm going to get me a good job, make some money. I'm going to have a nice house, big car, big boat. Uh, oh yeah, I'm going to church. And I'm talking to people this morning who are not just young people. I'm talking about adults who all their lifetime have envisioned that Christianity is just kind of adding a little a bit of God to the rest of the ingredient to make, a, kind of make it flavorable. Tillich, he said, you cannot reach out and touch the horns of the altar with your little finger. And Finellen says, you cannot belong half to God. You cannot have just a little God and put him in the rest with the rest of the ingredients. He said, 
I'll be all or none. You know why people are so happy in their Christian life? It's not what they thought it would be. And they read all these books about how everybody's supposed to be happy and they paste these little uh, smiles on their face and try to pretend. You know why people are so unhappy in their Christian life? It's not because God failed to come through at crutch time, didn't answer their prayer. It's not because the church is unfriendly or the preacher preaches too long. That's not why. You know why you're unhappy in your Christian life? It's the result of a divided heart that seeks to remain divided because the only way to joy is a single heart determined to know the will of God and do it. It's the only way to happiness in the Christian life. A little dash of God in the ingredient, you know what that means? It means that, that I always see God in His service as a damper on life. Just a little, knowing just a little of God means that, that I always see God as somebody putting the brakes on all my fun, like the guy who said, Lord, bless us here in church while everybody else is out having a good time. Just a little bit of God, and just a little dash of God means that I want to use God and I want Him to help me fulfill my dreams in life. And, and He's necessary just as long, you know, until the surgery's over. There's no joy in that. The joy comes when in singleness of mind I find the will of God and do it totally. Oh, there's, there's so much joy in knowing that whenever you're serving God there will always be resources available for every need. And there's so much victory knowing that at the end of this life there's a crown. And so Jesus said, my meat, my essential food is to do the will of my Father. There, there's so much joy in that. You can't have a little bit of God. Like the guy who said, I want $3 worth of God, please. I don't want enough of Him to explode my soul or disturb my sleep. Just about an equal amount of a cup of warm milk or snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of him to make me love a black man or pick beets with a migrant. It's ecstasy I want, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb. I don't want new birth. I want a pound of eternal life in a sack. I want three pounds of God, three dollars worth of God. Can't do it. There's no joy in that. The joy comes, young people, when you lay your life down as to the cross in explicit obedience. This story and I'm through. Will Campbell has a little novel, historical novel about the Anabaptists. The Anabaptists were Christians in the 17th century who denied infant baptism and, and they believed only in adult baptism. As a matter of fact, the Anabaptists are now modern-day Mennonites, and they're very close to Southern Baptists. The Anabaptists, uh, because they denied infant baptism, they were seen as heretics of the church, and because there was a state church, they were seen as, as committing treason against the government, and so they were put to death. And whenever somebody was rebaptized, that's what Anabaptists were, they were rebaptized as an adult. When they were rebaptized, 
both the person who was rebaptized and the one who baptized them are put to death. This little story, this little novel is called Cecilia's Sin. Cecilia decides that what her role in life is is to tell the story about these Anabaptists. And, and her favorite password was, I need to tell the story. And so she'd interview these people who were eyewitnesses to those people who were martyred. And some of them escaped persecution of their own. And, and they told her about how that some of them were, their, their limbs were torn off with hot coals. And some of them were sewn in sacks and thrown in the water to drown. Some of them were covered with gunpowder. It's a historical truth. Some of them were covered with gunpowder and thrown into the fire. And Cecilia had to tell her story. And so she'd interview these people knowing that pretty soon, one of these days, she herself would be martyred. But one night she was interviewing this old man by the name of William Cool, And he said a strange thing. He said, remember, Cecilia, telling the story is not the story. And that thought barricaded itself in her mind and she couldn't get rid of it. And, and as she interviewed these people, it just haunted her. And all of a sudden it began to dawn on her what, what he meant that telling the story is not what it's all about. It's being the story. What do you remember about Mrs. Staten? Do you remember, about, do you remember that what she said? I bet you there's not ten people here this morning can tell me ten things that Mrs. Staten ever said to you. What do you remember about Mrs. Staten? Not what she said, but who she was and what she did. And so... She began to be taunted, tormented by that thought. Telling the story is not the story. You and I tell, talk a big talk. We know all the verbiage. You ask anybody in this place this morning, you know, to describe what he... Most of us know the right words. But just the night before Cecilia was put to death, martyred herself, she did a strange thing. She got with her friends and they took that manuscript and page after page they threw it in the fire and they said, William Cool is right. Talking the story is not the story. About that time they heard sounds of hoofbeats of horses and the footsteps of soldiers and she went out not to tell the story but she went out to die because she was the story. Isn't it a tragedy? that we have taken the gospel, something that's so incredible, it's almost in, too incredible to believe, and we've made it so insignificant that nobody does. And isn't it incredible that we have made faith such a small thing, our faith in God such a small and insignificant thing that the average person out there wonders if it makes any difference at all anyway. And so the call of this text is a call not to talk the talk, but to walk the walk. The call of this text is a call to be the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in being that, you live out a faith that is undeniable. pray with me. Father, I ask you now to help us understand 
that the call to follow thee is not negotiable. And you never say, please. You say, come and follow me and give up your life. And I pray there'll be some today who will get up and follow you and give up their life. That they might find the joy of the Christian life for the first time and that they might live the story that Jesus, the living word, came to die to declare. For I pray in his name, and I ask it for his sake. Look at here, please. There are three invitations. I ask you this morning, if you've never, for the first time, at point of time in your life, began to follow Jesus, I want you to get up out of your seat and begin to follow him. Didn't say explain him or define him, follow him. The Christian life, this is the, not the end of it, it's just the beginning. I want you to get up out of your seat this morning if you have never, at point of time, given yourself to Christ to get up and begin to follow him. And it begins with your trusting in His finished work, repenting of your own sin. I want to ask you in, in, in this moment of invitation, for those of us who are Christians who live out here on the peripheral, to understand that this is no game, and for you to make that commitment that would say to Jesus Christ, here I place at your disposal, all I am, all I have. Maybe you need to come this morning and join the church. These commands, these invitations are non-negotiable. Who is willing to say, I'll be the first. Understanding the cost, I'll be the first. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.